Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by a repeat guest, Dr. David Brownstein, who we interviewed last year for his pioneering, absolutely pioneering work on the implementation in, of a very comprehensive protocol to effectively treat COVID-19. So he's finally written his book. It is out and we're uh, excited to reconnect again and discuss the details of the book and get an update on what's happened since the last time we connected. So welcome and thank you for joining us again today. And wait, wait, before the name of the book is a holistic approach to viruses. So Thanks welcome me, Dr. Mercola. Yeah. So, um, so how have things been going since the last time we talked? I think you had published an anecdotal study uh, with 107, 108 cases at that point, and it was 100% successful. No one had passed away. Uh, and I'm wondering what your stats are now and what, what's been going on since we last spoke. So we're over 220 patients now. Um, I don't have a direct count, but I'll bet, it's, I'll bet it's actually over 230. And out of our patients, we've had no deaths. Um, we've had a couple of hospitalizations, much, much, you know, smaller than should be for the reported statistics. And we're still using the same protocol. Um, <laughs> same, Imagine same, that. We haven't changed. It's, it's the same thing we've been using for 25 plus years for flu and flu-like illnesses, but our patients are still responding. Now we don't have as many right now because COVID is definitely in, in my area in Michigan has dropped off dramatically. You know, I, we pretty much have one patient I've been calling all weekend because we were calling all our patients throughout this whole time. So, you know, we cleared them, you know, and, and they were feeling better, but, um, patient I called over the weekend told me, you know, I talked to him yesterday and he said, he's feeling much better. His breathing is back to normal. I said, all right, I'm going to take you off my call list. And he said, you know, I want to tell you one thing. There's two things that I, out of what you gave me that I could tell really made me feel better. And I gave him the whole protocol of oral, vitamin A, C, D, and iodine, and nebulized peroxide and iodine. And he said, it was when I added that iodine in. And he said, um, you know, I forgot to use the iodine the first day or two when you, you asked me about it, and I added it back in orally. And he said, that made the difference. And he said, my mucus thinned out, my breathing was better, and I forgot to put the iodine in the nebulizer. And I did both at the same time, the oral iodine and the nebulized hydrogen peroxide and iodine. And he said, everything cleared up after that. He He's breathing was 80, 90% better shortly after the first or second dose of iodine. And, um, you know, he's another success story that we've had, you know, which is supporting people's immune systems during these viral illness times. Well, thank you for sharing that because that was actually one of my questions. And uh, because I was expecting to get a speculated answer because it would almost be irresponsible to conduct a study on this, but I was wondering what the, what was the, 
the primary difference. And if, if iodine really made a significant difference, and obviously from that anecdotal observation, it, it appears to. You know, that's not the first one that's told me that. There, there are two things that I've heard since March of 2020, and we started treating COVID patients that really helped them feel better. One was nebulizing. So we mixed a dilute solution of hydrogen peroxide and iodine together. So I can't really mm-hmm. par- parse it out which one was better. But when they nebulize the hydrogen peroxide iodine, and then when they, you know, a few patients have told me when they, if they forgot to take iodine, they started using it orally they felt much better with it. And, you know, I would implore my colleagues to add iodine into whatever regimen you're using to treating patients who are ill with, you know, flu-like illnesses, you know, such as COVID. Excellent. So uh, I recently had a chance to interview Dr. Zelenko, who I'm sure you're familiar with his work. His uh, primary focus is on hydroxychloroquine. We didn't get a a chance to discuss the nebulized peroxide, but I have a great respect for what he's done, especially in light of his personal illnesses. Uh, but I, I'm wondering, you know, we had discussed the uh, long haul syndrome and I was surprised to, to un- understand his, his uh, perception of it, but it makes perfect sense once you, once you hear it is that in his, his view, He's, he's basically not seen any long haul syndrome in, in, unless the person failed to get some type of effective intervention within the first five days. And his speculation was that the virus tends to replicate after, but after five, di- five days, you have a very high level of virus. And it's this high level of the virus that can uh, literally uh, contribute to the higher risk of having this long haul syndrome. And I wonder what your experience has been because my guess is that most of the patients you're seeing are very early on. You're not seeing people who haven't, who have just been lingering out there and not knowing what to do. That's true. We've had a few patients referred to us who weren't our patients and they were sick for a long period of time before they came to us. And out of our patients, the numbers hold true. Um, We had one patient die who was referred to us after he was sick for almost two weeks. And he was in his late eighties, had a bunch of comorbidities. And mm-hmm. my partner treated him for two days and he died on the second day of his treatment. Um, th- that was the only, the only blemish on, you know, our protocol, but out of our patients who started early, no one's, you know, we have very few hospitalizations, no deaths. And I would agree with Dr. Zelenko. Our long haulers are really minimal. I mean, you know, when I, when I looked at the first 107 patients, the long haulers was 2%. Um, now the reported numbers of them are somewhere averaging between 25 and you know 40 percent are developing long haul symptoms, and that that less than five percent number hasn't changed with the next 150 or so patients that we've treated with it. And I agree that you know the the, the huge disaster of COVID 19 that history will tell someday is the powers that be telling us there's nothing we can do. Stay home. <laughs> lock yourself in your basement, quarantine yourself from your family, you know, wear your mask, social distance, and that's it. No therapies, no nothing. Wait till the vaccine comes out. And, you know, this, this no therapies time has resulted in over 400,000 deaths. And, you know, it's however you look at it, you can, you can add the numbers up any way you want to add them up. And, um, Maybe the death numbers are exaggerated, which, you know, yeah, I see, I think that would be come out, but there's a lot of people that have died because the governments and the powers that be 
and the AMA and everybody else out there has said, there's nothing you can offer and don't offer anything because, you know, it hasn't been randomized, double-blind placebo control. Therefore, um, you know, you can't do it. And if doctors do it, we're going to censor them and hold them accountable. And that's been the biggest disaster of this whole thing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and I also agree that these numbers that they're quoting are seriously inflated um, because you all you had to do is die with with the virus infection, not of the virus, and you were classified as a viral death. So all the large numbers of people with comorbidities. And, and it actually, if you look at the total death rate last year, it wasn't significantly different from previous years. So it wasn't like this influx of 400,000 new deaths that we would not have had. They were just being reclassified. But be that as it may, if it was only 50,000 or 100,000, this intervention that we're going to discuss in more detail that you've developed and pioneered is good for everything. Because in, in normal years, we're having 10, 20, 50,000 people die from, from a viral infection. So it, does, it doesn't just work for COVID. This is not COVID specific. This is a viral infection, generalized, sort of, sort of like a shotgun therapy that's just absolutely works to improve your immune response. But why don't we start there with the uh, breaking down your, your description of the immune system into the innate and the adaptive immune system, because you do a nice job of uh, describing that in the book. Well, you know, Joe, when 20, 30, almost 30 years ago, I decided that I wasn't happy with what I was taught in medical school and my, you know, prescribing one drug to treat the, you know, one diagnosis and, you know, nothing about nutrition and, and immune supports and correcting imbalances. You know, I decided I would, you know, it was from treating my dad who had bad heart disease and tried a couple of natural things on him and he got better. And I realized that's a better way to practice medicine to support people's physiology and biochemistry. Mm-hmm. So I remember when I switched over and I left the practice I was at and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm reading book after book and going to conference after conference and, you know, moving forward with things and starting to check people's blood, hair and urine tests for nutrient levels and finding nearly everybody is deficient in basic nutrients. And you know, I started prescribing supplements and, and minerals and vitamins and things to correct them. And I remember when flu season came around, I was well aware that every year, 20 to 80,000 people die from the flu on an average flu season. If it's a bad flu season, 100,000 will die. Um, and in the 1990s, when I was starting off, there, were, there was no therapies. I mean, there was no Tamiflu. Not that I think Tamiflu is any great shakes for treating the flu. In fact, <laughs> I've encouraged people not to take Tamiflu. It's a drug should have never been approved, should be pulled from the market, and it's a terrible, terrible uh, efficacy against viral illnesses, but we didn't even have Tamiflu available. We had nothing. So if you got the flu, you were told stay home, you know, hydrate, uh, rest and, you know, get out, get back out when you're feeling better. Well, I didn't want to see 20 to 80,000 people die a year, not in my, you know, not the percentage in my practice. So I started looking, you know, what I was finding deficient in people. And then I started looking at those individual nutrients and seeing what supports the immune system up. And you know, eventually, and it came quickly, the basic protocol came quickly that, you know, the vast majority of patients were either deficient or low in vitamin C. And all you had to do was check vitamin C levels to see where they fall. And, you know, on, on a reference range, the vast majority of people on the low end of that reference range, and there's a, there's a 30, 40% that are, you know, vitamin C deficient, just on basic blood testing, you know, vitamin C helps both the innate and adaptive immune systems, which, you know, we can go through. And 
you know, vitamin D, you know, I, I was, when I wanted to, you know, I was figuring I live in a Northern climate. I got, I figured most people got to be deficient in vitamin D. So I went to order a vitamin D three level and lab doesn't offer it. So I, I called the lab and the representative comes to my office and she says, well, you know, nobody's ordering this. I'm like, well, I want to order it. And she said, why do you want to order it? I said, because I'm, I don't know if people are vitamin D deficient or not. What, what year was this? What 1992. Year was wow. Uh, you were so far ahead, man. That is great. So I remember the conversation with her and she said, well, let me see what I can do. So she go, calls me up a week later and says, we can order the 25 hydroxy D3 level. You know, we'll, we'll develop the test for you. We'll order, you know, get the equipment in. <laughs> what lab was this? This was at that time. West Lab Smith. No, this was uh, I, I was Detroit Medical Center Labs. DMP okay. Lab. And so a week later, I get a call. The kits are in. They can I can order the test. So I start ordering the test. And you know, ninety plus percent of people are low in vitamin D. Um, you know, and and there's a significant portion, probably a third to a half, you know, with rickets levels of vitamin D. Um, so I start prescribing vitamin D and, and the rep comes to my office about six months later and says, you know, we're following these numbers. You know, we don't know what to do with them. Everybody's low. And I, she goes, how'd you, how'd you do that? And I, well, I figured I'm in a Northern climate and I'm seeing these other nutrients low. What, why wouldn't vitamin D be low? So I started prescribing vitamin D, you know, and, and what dose were you using? What dose? Um, I pretty much use the same dose that I've always used with it. 6,000 units a day for most people. In 1992, you're using 6,000 units a day? Nobody's gotten toxic. I am shocked that they didn't take your license away. Anyone no, over 2,000? No. You know, the internet wasn't there, so censorship wasn't there. You could actually talk about things that were working and report your failures Jeez. and successes without fear of reprisal. Um, you so are so far ahead of the curve. So people were doing great. They were actually, you know, it was interesting that there were people with joint and bone pain that felt a lot better, especially older people. You know, when they had these really below 10 levels of vitamin D, you know, when they <laughs> took vitamin D, they, they felt mark markedly better. So I looked up vitamin D and I'm looking at how it affects the immune system. And lo and behold, vitamin D has huge effects on the immune system. There's receptors everywhere for, you know, both the innate and adaptive immune systems. And, you know, vitamin D deficiencies associated with, sepsis and, you know, poor immune system response to pathogens. And so, you know, I, I quickly added, you know, vitamin C and D in. and same thing happened with vitamin A checking levels and people are low and, um, you know, reading about vitamin A, which, you know, is a fascinating vitamin. Um, and, you know, added vitamin A in it, you know, just for, I would put people on low dose vitamin A for a replacement. And then, you know, if they got sick or the first sign of an illness, my dose is of these three things were 50, um, 100,000 units of vitamin A a day for four days, 50,000 units of vitamin D3 a day for four days, and then vitamin C, 1,000 milligrams an hour orally while you were awake, if you, you know, of, of ascorbic acid, if you, you know, just took it until you either got bowel tolerance and you got loose stools or you just kept taking it till your symptoms went away. And generally, when people are sicker, they can take more vitamin C without getting, you know, the bowel stuff. Um, the those were my first three things that I did. And what I found was when people got the flu or flu-like illness and they started taking these three things they, you know, immediately they would call me up and say, you know, I, I was better in 24 hours. A lot of times, you know, it was amazing. You know, my sore throat went away, my cough went away, you know, uh, you know, markedly better. A few years later, I learned about iodine and start testing iodine and find, you know, over 97% of people are deficient in iodine, the vast majority markedly deficient. 
um, meeting WHO standards of severely deficient in iodine. Um, and I add iodine into that protocol. And my average dose of iodine for most people is if they don't have glandular problem, like breast problems with their breasts, um, uh, prostates, thyroid, pancreas, ovaries, uterus, you know, about 12 and a half milligrams a day. And if they had problems with those glands, it would be more. But I would say the average dose of iodine that over the years that I've had my patients on is 25 milligrams a day. And it's a combination of iodine and iodide, which is found in Lugol solution. And that was quickly added into that four-part regimen. And that made a huge difference. People like that. They felt better with it. Iodine is one of those rare nutrients that you can put people on and, you know, a significant proportion just feel better right away, you know, with iodine. And so that was my mainstay. And, and then somewhere in that few, first few years, I start, you know, I'm, I'm researching iodine and I find out in the 19, early 20th century, doctors had written multiple case histories about nebulizing iodine for pneumonias and for lung problems and bronchitis and, you know, any lung irritation problems. And so I stumbled across, you know, nebulizing iodine and, and I added that in. And then maybe a few years after that, um, hydrogen peroxide came in my, my window. Um, that one I was a little leery about, you know, using an IV or nebulized just because, you know, I couldn't wrap my head around how am I going to use this oxidative therapy? Isn't that going to make people worse? But the more I learned about hydrogen peroxide and it's, it's produced in every cell in the body, it's produced in huge amounts throughout the body, you know, every, every second, every minute, every day. Um, I started using IV and, you know, nebulized peroxide and I mixed the nebulized peroxide with a nebulized iodine in one solution. And that really was a cool addition that for people that were developing lung problems or pneumonia or, or lung cancer or COPD, um, coughing and they can't breathe and they're wheezing and things like that, you know, adding a nebulized so dilute solution of hydrogen peroxide at 0.04% and one drop of 5% Lugol solution, um, which supplied 6.25 milligrams of iodine, really helped a lot of people out. Um, and then, and then one drop is in a, a therapeutic dose that you put in nebulizer, like about five cc's? Uh, three cc's of saline. CCs. And um, it's, it's three cc's total of okay. this 0.04 solution of peroxide and, and normal saline. And um, then the one drop of Lugol's is added into that separately. Okay. Um, and people would nebulize and they did great with it. And, um, it, you know, over the years, if, if 20 to 80,000 people are dying from the flu a year times 30 years, that's a hell of a lot of people dying from the flu. Our practice should have its share of that. You know, we have five practitioners. We're all busy. We're all seeing patients all day, you know, as a full-time practice. And we don't have people dying from flu in our practice. We don't have people hospitalized with pneumonia from the flu. Um, not anywhere near the numbers. I mean, have we had deaths and hospitalizations? I'm sure we have none of us can recall a death directly from the flu. And I'm sure we've had a few hospitalizations over the years, but nothing like 20 to 80,000 per year times 30 years. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we, as we were learning these therapies, you know, it was, it was gradual as we learned things we added in. And, you know, we, you know, I started for people who, who needed a little bit more support or who were sicker or especially those with chronic illness, like smokers, or, you know, if they had lung problems before getting sick, um, your lungs would get severely affected. And so we added in IV, you know, I was already doing IVs, but we added in doing IV vitamin C 
IV hydrogen peroxide is pushes, IV pushes. And then ozone was my latest addition. You know, I learned from Dr. Robert Rowan, maybe, I don't know now, 12, 13, 14 years ago about ozone. And we started adding in, you know, both IV and IM ozone. And during this, the only thing we changed during this COVID crisis was we didn't want those patients in our office that I was worried about my staff. And um, I have, as I've grown older, for some reason, my staff seems to have grown older and I didn't want COVID patients in my office. I mean, before COVID, we had people with flu, they were coughing, hacking, come right in. You know, we would maybe separate them in their own room, but they'd come in, you know, wait for us and bring their box of Kleenex in the waiting room. And, you know, that's just how we did. We walk in the room. We didn't have, I didn't wear gloves to examine. I've never worn gloves to examine a patient. I never wore a mask before all this. And, you know, I'd examine a patient. And um, so during this thing, since, you know, everyone was scared, including me at the beginning, you know, I, I was scared. I have my own health problems. I'm not the best patient to get these viral illnesses. And, um, you know, we saw them outside. And so seeing them outside, we didn't really want to do ozone as an IV outside. We did the peroxide and vitamin C pushes outside out of their car door, but we did ozone in the rear end. And so, you know, is the ozone a gas that you're administering? We were, we were just putting, filling a syringe with ozone. It looked like air in that syringe. You couldn't see okay. it. Smell yeah. it. And we would just put the gas in the rear end. You know, it was a butt wow. shot. And um, the, <laughs> you know, it's in winter time, you know, March and April in Michigan. And the, even through this winter, we've still been doing same therapy. You know, for people where we have COVID, we line them up outside in their cars and we go out there and we're putting their arms out the window. We're putting their IVs in. We have a whole system to do it in cold weather and you know, dilate. We can get their veins dilated in cold weather from our, took us a little trial and error, but we got it right. And then for the ozone butt shot, it was interesting, you know, here it's, the, it's 10 degrees outside, you know, snowing and sleeting and all that stuff. And you tell you the patient, you got to come out of the car or just put your rear, you know, open the car door and put your rear end out. You know, these ladies, men, nobody seemed to care. They weren't feeling good. They wanted to feel better, stand up, drop their drawers. And, you know, I can tell you one thing I've seen far too many rear ends in the last year. It's, you know, I'm tired of seeing rear ends. I just want to go back to regular medicine without having people's rear ends out their car door where I'm putting an ozone butt shot in each, in each cheek. But it's, it, you know, when this, when we started this therapy, I, I told you in the last visit, you know, I didn't know this was going to work. We hadn't treated COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 and, you know, we haven't treated that virus, but we've treated Undoubtedly, we've treated other coronaviruses since 30% of flu-like illnesses are coronavirus every year, and they got better. And I didn't see any reason why this wouldn't work for this strain, and it did work. And um, it just, the whole thing, my whole experience, you know, I, I was blogging about it. I was interviewing patients. I was writing about it. And I was titling these blog posts, There's Still Hope Out There, because back then there was no hope for anything. You, you, you recall over 80% of people got hospitalized and got ventilated, died. You know, there were, there were freezer trucks to get the bodies. And, you know, especially in the beginning, you know, New York City, Detroit, um, Massachusetts, New Jersey, you know, the hot areas. And, um, you know, the headlines were terrible. Basically, just lock yourself in the basement, nothing to do, and wait till we get this vaccine, you know, eight or nine months later. And, and um, you know, I, I remember telling my staff, we're not closing the office. I'm staying open. I didn't, I told everyone, you don't have to work. No one has to work. I don't want anyone working who's not comfortable. I said, we've got a good therapy. We'll take care of you if you get sick. We won't let a COVID patient in the office. 
And um, I said, we got to take care of these patients. They're going to have nowhere to go. I, I, this was the end of February. And I said, they're going to close everything down. I, I said, most doctor's offices are going to close because, because they, what are they going to do for them? There, there's nothing they can do except tell them to stay home. I said, we got therapies that we can do to support their immune system. And, um, and we worked with about 50% of our staff. The other 50% got scared and stayed home and, you know, they came back eventually. Um, but the interesting thing was through that first wave of COVID in March and April, no one in my office got sick in my office. That was, um, now we did get sick in the fall. Um, you know, we, um, we, we kept all those sick patients out of the office and we did great. And then I had one staff member come in sick and um, that triggered it. And not, we all got, most of us got COVID in the office. And, uh, you know, right now we have a herd immune office. We have uh, 87% <laughs> of us have antibodies to COVID. So, um, well, they were all treated. So they were all treated and enhanced their immune system. And now they've got permanent immunity better than any vaccine could possibly do. Yep. So they were all treated, but there's, there's one caveat to that. So my study that I wrote was a case controlled, consecutive case controlled study of 107 patients. Well, in my office, I now have a single blinded randomized controlled study because the one patient who came in my office sick, um, um, who, who I think started it, um, I was calling her every day, just like I called everyone every night after work. Um, and you know, I was saying, are you taking your vitamin A, C, D, are you nebulizing, you know, come in, we'll do an IV. Cause she was clearly having breathing problems and you know, wasn't getting better. And after like the sixth or seventh day, I'm like, what is going on? Everyone's getting better. I don't understand why you're having problems. And, um, so, um, what I found out later was she was hospitalized and, um, for, for about seven or 10 days and came home and, she wasn't taking anything. She took one vitamin C pill once and that was it. And I don't think she was thinking clearly when she was sick. And I think that was it. But so I was blinded to that because she was telling me she was taking it. So that's a single blinded. Um, she's the she's the control group who wasn't really treated with anything except for that one pill of vitamin C. Everyone else was given the whole protocol. So she was has that's an N of one. So it's hundred percent hospitalizations for those who didn't take the protocol and um, very small, less than 1% hospitalizations for those who took it. So that's my single-blinded randomized controlled study. I'm that's an great. Yeah. So I want to get back to uh, some of the things that we shouldn't take. And you had alluded to the Tamiflu not being effective. And if it is, and the studies I've read suggest it might work, decrease the symptoms for an hour or two. I uh, have less I mean, the, the, the length of the disease, the course of the disease by an hour or two. So it's nothing significant. But there's another thing that you mentioned in your book that I think that I'd like to emphasize and I'd like you to talk about it because it's not typically looked at and viewed even in natural medical physicians. Although they know it, they tend not to emphasize it. I think this is a point that needs to be majorly emphasized. And that is, you write in your book, do not take Tylenol, or I'm assuming it, is, it, it extends to other antipyretics like aspirin or ibuprofen. And you don't want to suppress the body's ability to, to mount a fever. So why don't you go into that? Because I think it is so crucial. So sometimes, yes, it's great to have these nutrients, but you don't want to sabotage it with drugs. I mean, you know, Joe, a fever is there for a purpose. The body, we were designed really pretty perfectly, you know, to survive viral illnesses, to live to old age and have a good brain function into old age. And 
you know, if we support the body, if we give it the basic nutrients that it needs and the basic raw materials and support that it needs, it can do really cool things. The problem we do is in the world we live in, the toxic world we live in, you know, things are, enzymes are poisoned and receptors are blocked. And we take all these drugs that poison receptors and block, uh, poison enzymes and block receptors. And, you know, it leads to problems. And when you look at the biochemistry and the physiology of the human body, which they don't teach you in med school to really look at it in a way that we should be looking at it for how to support things, because drugs don't do that. Drugs block things in the body that, you know, we've got people with problems. And so what I saw with patients, you know, my partner for years is always, I've heard him on the phone, uh, my partner, Dr. Ng with his patients saying, you know, fever's your friend. And the fever's there for a reason. Your body raises body temperature to bacteria and viruses don't like a raised body temperature. That's why it does it. It's trying to make the environment inhospitable for a foreign pathogen. Um, so the worst thing you can do in that situation, unless the fever is too high, I mean, a fever over hundred maybe 3.5 or 104 can cause brain problems and, and seizures, and you can die from a fever, but most people don't get fevers up that high when they're sick. You know, low-grade fevers, you know, 99.5 to maybe 101, 102. I tell patients, don't take anything for that. It, the, you just support the body up. Let it do its thing. I know you don't feel good. Look, I've had my share of fevers. I know it hurts and you're aching. and and um, But, I mean, you can control this temperature much better than using antipyretics like Tylenol or ibuprofen by taking a tepid bath or sponge bathing with just, you know, tepid water. You know, a bath with Epsom salts, I can tell you, was very helpful for my COVID patients. They, they like that. Um, and it's been helpful for these other viral illnesses over the years. But Tylenol in particular is a bigger problem because it, it poisons the enzyme that makes glutathione. Mm-hmm. And glutathione is, the, is produced intracellularly. It's a strong antioxidant. It's, one of the, it's the strongest intracellular antioxidant that I know of. And when you get sick with viral illnesses, bacterial illnesses, or stress or anything, you want the body to make more glutathione to support these cells. You take Tylenol, you block that out. And, you know, the Tylenol has a very short window of toxicity, meaning that if you go over those recommended doses on the label, but not by much, you can get Tylenol toxicity and, you know, the liver starts to break down and you, you can, people die from this. Thousands of people die every year across the United States from Tylenol overuse. And um, the government recognized this because a few years ago, they started mandating big pharma take Tylenol out of a lot of the pain medications because people were dying from Tylenol toxicity. The treatment for Tylenol toxicity is um, nebulized uh, N-acetylcysteine, which is the precursor to making glutathione. Um, so I, I really tell my patients to avoid taking Tylenol. I really made a point of it with COVID because um, they needed their glutathione production. And you know, as far as Motrin and ibuprofen and aspirin goes, um, at the beginning of the crisis, I saw three patients who were who told me when they took their first dose of Motrin for a fever, they collapsed. Their system went to hell. They had trouble breathing. They felt everything got worse an hour or two after that first dose of ibuprofen. There was an early article that, that hypothesized that taking ibuprofen and, and NSAIDs might make COVID worse because it, it can um, um, affect the ACE2 receptor and make the virus more likely to latch onto it. Um, that hasn't really been proven out, but I think it's more, you know, you're blocking the body's natural fever response and it's, it's just not a good thing to do. Now, if the temperature is too high, 
over 103.5, I'm you got to lower the temperature. At that point, you either get in a bath and lower the temperature, or you take some Motrin or ibuprofen and lower the temperature. Tylenol, I would stay away from, unless that's the only thing you can take and you can't take ibuprofen for stomach ulcers or GI bleeding or kidney failure or something like that. Yeah, so it's, uh, you mentioned nebulized uh, N-acetylcysteine, NAC, for the tr for Tylenol overdose, but actually in the emergency room, th and this just shows you that it's even accepted by conventional medicine. That's the standard treatment for Tylenol overdose in the ER is intravenous NAC. That's what yeah. they use. It totally works, saves people's lives every single day. So with that understanding, and, uh, and thank you for highlighting that, I'm wondering if you, I do, did you integrate the NAC into your protocol? You know what, I did say nebulized, but I meant intravenous with the uh, ER. Yeah, yeah. No, I never, we never found the need for it. And our, you know, our patients, we, we, they got better. So we didn't really use that. And, um, you know, I, I do do IV glutathione pushes in my office all the time. Yeah. We, we, we use it as our, you know, it's a standard part of our IV protocols. Sure, sure. Um, but for COVID, we just didn't see the need for it. Our patients were getting better with what we were doing. So we've, we've kind of stuck to our guns. We didn't use, um, we didn't use, um, what uh, Dr. Zelenko used, uh, you know, the, the medication. Ivermectin, uh, hydro hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine, we didn't use ivermectin. We didn't use those two things. Yeah. And we didn't really feel the need to. Now, I think that doctors should be allowed to prescribe ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. And I think that when you look at the literature around the world for those two products, particularly for ivermectin, literature is pretty clear that, you know, <laughs> It's pretty clear on the benefits of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, but I mean, ivermectin, I, I've studied that. I'm sure you've seen those numbers. You know, it's, it's astounding how, how well around the world they're reporting ivermectin doing and that the doses they're using, they're, they're, both these drugs are particularly safe. Um, you know, there's no toxicity. We didn't use them. And would I use them now? I don't know. Why would I use them now? Our patients are still doing well with it. Sure. Um, I've had a few no patients need. ask right. me for prescriptions if they're traveling for prophylaxis. And I'll prescribe it if they ask for it in low dose, because I don't think there's any harm to it. But I always tell them, just take your nebulizer with you, take the hydrogen peroxide with you, take the iodine with you, and, and you know, nebulize when you get to a place. You know, after you've been on the airplane, get to the hotel room, nebulize. It'll kill. The theory is, hopefully, that it not only does it support the immune system, but it should kill foreign pathogens in the airways and the, you know, the nose and the throat where the, yeah. these viruses start and they start replicating and start causing their problems. Yeah. So with respect to the NAC, getting back to that for a moment, uh, the, I'm sure you're familiar with Dr. Merrick's protocol for IV sepsis, which, you know, is really, I'm so grateful because he's a conventional medical physician with quite a significant credentials. And I think he's got a academic appointment at his university. Uh, but as part of his protocol, uh, it's called math or the math plus protocol. The H stands for heparin. And the reason they're using heparin is because there's this tendency towards clotting and uh, NAC seems to be a, a, a magnificent alternative to heparin and probably almost as effective uh, because it tends to uh, uh, impair that ability to, 
to or or, or help the uh, cascading limit the cascading effect of the the, the uh, platelet aggregation. So, but if you're not getting sick by using your therapy, it's great. And and uh, it's interesting too. I mean that you haven't found the need to use hydroxychloroquine or uh, other zinc ionophores like quercetin. So uh, you never use zinc in anybody. Yeah, I, that's what I was going to get to because. It is astounding because you, your your focus is on nutritional interventions, and yet you you tended to ignore the one of the most widely recommended nutritional interventions for this is zinc, but with a zinc ionophore like hydroxychloroquine or, or quercetin, and you didn't find a need for that, and yet very few of hardly any of your patients uh, when they even went to the hospital, let alone died. So, so the one of the, the I think the main reason we didn't use zinc, every new patient that I see gets tested for plasma zinc levels and hair zinc levels. So if they're zinc deficient when I see them, they, the, the, our patients might have done so well. Maybe, maybe my therapy doesn't work at all, but <laughs> maybe they've done so well because look, we were doing a nutritional protocol and, and support and, and correcting imbalances and detoxifying from metals before COVID hit many of these patients. Now, having said that, we've had enough patients referred to us from other doctors that they've responded as well too. And those, a lot of those ones were the ones I was doing the interviews on before I got censored by the FTC and had to take everything down. And they responded as well to it. So I didn't have blood work on those patients beforehand. But, you know, I've been correcting zinc levels for 25 plus years now. And you know, our, our patients hopefully are going into getting sick without low zinc levels, which I think is a better way to be than what's probably out there with the average person. Yeah. What, when you do find low zinc levels, what level of zinc are you using to augment them? Like about 10, no, 15 milligrams? I, I never use nutrients individually. I think they work better as part of a holistic treatment regimen, but I, I don't use big doses of these things unless they're sick. But, you know, zinc, I would say 25 milligrams is the average dose I use. You know, it's nothing fancy and it's a chelated form of zinc. Um, so there's actually less um, ionic zinc, you know, because it's bound to something. But um, as part of a holistic treatment regimen, and look, we're also cleaning up their diet, getting sugar out of their diet. You know, I wrote that in my book that, you know, it's not just taking these things. It's, it's a holistic protocol. You got to clean up your diet. You got to exercise, um, you know, eating better and getting sugar out of the diet is huge. Sugar paralyzes the white blood cells for up to five hours of function. You know, these, I, what I, what I was really irritated about in the beginning of the crisis, you know, here, here we are seeing patients and, you know, every COVID patient, whether they were new to us, referred by another doctor or their practice, as soon as we called, before we went some in the parking lot, all five of us were on the phone saying, get sugar out of your diet, zero sugar right now. You need your white blood cells functioning as 100%. And, you know, the first thing we told them was you need to hydrate and you need to eat sugar, not nature, eat no <laughs> sugar. Um, so anything with added sugar in it, they were told to remove it. So um, you know, all these therapies work better as part of a holistic treatment protocol where you're supporting the body up. And, you know, in the hospital, the few hospitalized patients we had, they, they were telling me the food they were getting. They, they just, they told me they weren't going to eat it. And number one, they lost their sense of smell and taste. So most of them weren't hungry anyways, but you know, they, there's, they were having their spouses bring food to them because they were going to eat the crap in the hospital, which is full of sugar and, you know, jello and the juice and, you know, it was terrible. I remember my mom was in the hospital a couple of years ago for diverticulitis and, you know, I was visiting her and they bring the food in and I took a picture of the tray of food, which was loaded with sugar. I added up as much as I could come up with, with how much sugar was in it. And I wrote a blog post about it. Surprised I didn't get censored on that one. 
And, um, you know, I just said, this is ridiculous. Why are we feeding sick people lousy food? It's when they need healthy food. And, and so there's things people can do at home to make themselves healthier. So if you get confronted with something like SARS-CoV-2, you can respond appropriately because the vast majority of people aren't dying from this, even though they want us to think everyone like it's Ebola or hemorrhagic fever, you know, that 40, 50% of people are dying from this. You know, the vast majority of people are not dying from this. The vast majority of people aren't that sick from this, not minimizing it. I have seen my patients who can't breathe. I've talked to them on the phone. It's scary and people are dying from this, but you know, we can do things. It's not that we have to wait for a vaccine. And, um, you know, as I said at the beginning, when history writes itself about this, the wealthiest country on the face of the earth that spends the most on healthcare um, failed miserably. We, we have reached the bottom in our, in our failure of this more than any other country, I think. I agree. So it was a good uh, protocol and, and strategy to have people limit sugar. Uh, but I think even the wider course is to limit processed foods. And uh, I think there's an element in processed foods that's even more pernicious than sugar. But fortunately, removing it from the diet doesn't have the acute impact that sugar does. And that is the vegetable oils, which are just loaded with omega-6 fats, specifically linoleic acid, which is about 90% of the omega-6 fat. And that is just going to devastate your risk for, or radically increase your risk for COVID-19 because they actually, the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus integrates that linoleic acid and it, and it actually makes it, it, it is part of their strategy to infect the cell. So if you can limit that vegetable oil and, and linoleic acid intake, that's going to have a radical improvement too. It's just it's, getting back down to the basics. I mean, we have 10 to 20 times as much linoleic acid as we did 150 years ago. The basics is, is absolutely right, Joe. And um, my partners and I always talk after work, you know, we're tired. We've seen a lot of patients. We want to go home. We're making our phone calls. And inevitably, we start talking about it. You know, people just did the basics. They just cut sugar down, get the processed food, processed oils, and, and refined carbohydrates out of their diet, drink water, you know, keep enough salt on board and enough iodine on board. They should be able to get these viral infections, which we've gotten for since the beginning of human existence. And, you know, get sick for a period of time and then your immune system recovers and, you know, it's probably better for it. You have lifelong immunity to it. Even though they keep telling us sick people should get this vaccine, um, they have no scientific data to, to base themselves on that. The sick people should have lifelong immunity like they do for every other virus. I mean, we, you know, as I said, this, this has just been a disaster. And, um, you know, when the final story comes out, it's not going to be pretty. Yes, indeed. So I want to get into some of the specifics now for uh, some of your nutrients, just, just to make sure that people understand it, because uh, let's start with vitamin A, uh, which is interestingly has been used and there's no, absolutely no uh, disagreement with this, even in the conventional medical community is that it is useful for improving your immune response. And this, this, this nutrient has routinely been used in Africa uh, for children to prevent measles, far more effective than the measles vaccine. All they did was give them vitamin A. And so we know it works, but what are your recommendations for the type of vitamin A? Because there's a variety of them. And I want you to go into this. You do detail in the book too, like the difference between beta carotene and vitamin A and whether the vitamin A should be emulsified. So I, I made a point of really writing about that because 
over those years when I added vitamin A and I didn't really know the difference between, I knew the difference, but I didn't really know the significance of the difference between beta carotene and vitamin A. And those words are sort of batted around like they're one and the same. Um, beta carotene is a water soluble. Most, and that's mostly on nutrition labels. If you look at the nutrition facts label on many sub, uh, many foods, like vet, especially vegetable origins, they'll say beta carotene. They won't even say beta carotene. They'll just say vitamin A, just assuming that they're one and the same. You know, I've called companies on that when I see labels and I call them and say, what, what kind of vitamin A are you using? Say it's beta carotene. like, your label's wrong. It's not, it's not, and they'll, they'll change it. Um, so beta carotene is a water soluble form of vitamin A, but beta carotene does not have the effects on the immune system. Vitamin A does, the fat soluble form. So I made a point in my interviews online before they were pulled off of, you know, <laughs> saying use vitamin A, not beta carotene. And I made a point in that book a few places of saying the same thing. It's important to use vitamin A and I like emulsified vitamin A and, and, and labels should clearly say that good companies, you know, label, especially nutritional companies should label it what it is. And, and they do. Um, and beta carotene do not provide the immune system effects. Vitamin A does vitamin A helps minimize cytokine storm. It helps minimize the inflammatory factors like IL six, IL 10, IL eight and IL 12. Um, it, minim, it helps to lower TNF-alpha. Um, and the, the white blood cells need vitamin A as, as an integral part of their functioning. So it helps both the innate and the adaptive immune systems, um, you know, fight back. And most people are deficient in vitamin. Look, our food, the, the, the mineral and vitamin content of our food has dramatically decreased over the last 40 to 50 years. What, what's happened in our testing is that and I've seen this because I've now, unfortunately, I'm a little, got a few decades behind me, but I've seen the reference ranges change when I check these levels. So the reference range is not a normal range. It's just a, uh, there's a median in the middle where people fall. And then there's an upper and a lower range, which is one standard deviation on either side. But what they're trying to capture is 95% of people when they test, like, let's say they test hundred people at a lab, they'll come up with a reference range and say, the middle is here the upper limits here and the lower limits here. What's happened over the years is that reference range has shifted down. It shifted down for magnesium. It shifted down for zinc. It shifted down for vitamin A um, and it shifted down for other things. And the reason it shifted down is we've become more deficient. And so as a society, we are deficient in these basic nutrients. And, you know, if you work with a holistic doctor who's nutritionally literate, you know, they can help do the right tests and the right advice and, you know, work with you to, correct these and just give your body the basic raw materials it needs. So when it's confronted with a stressful situation, such as a virus or a bacteria or whatever, an emotional stress, it doesn't really matter. It can do what it's supposed to do to keep you healthy through it or, or allow you to, if you become ill to fight back and to get over it. So we don't die from it. Um, you know, it's, I've been checking vitamin A levels, like I said before. So the form of vitamin A is, is emulsified vitamin A, not beta carotene for this support. Okay, good. And you um, mentioned the, and started off with the strong anecdotal confirmation that the, uh, the iodine when added to the nebulization mixture seems to work even more effectively. So uh, the question I have is obviously peroxide is an oxidizing solution although admittedly it's a pretty low concentration, but when you add the iodine in there, um, is there any concern that you're going to oxidize that iodine 
and change the valence? Uh, or is it because it's such a short time? And, and would this be the reason why you add it just before you're going to use it and not in the stored solution with the peroxide? That is exactly, you know what? I, I, could, I could see where, I knew you were going to say it before you said it, but that's exactly why we did it separately because I didn't want it to mix with the peroxide and sit in that storage solution for three months, you know, in the fridge. Um, so we add it separately. Now, remember, this is Lugol's solution. So Lugol solution was designed in the 1820s by Dr. Lugol, and it's potassium iodide, the reduced form of iodine, plus iodine, and it's the oxidized form of iodine. Mm -hmm. So it's got both reduced and oxidized right. iodine in it. And in my, when I learned about iodine, I've tried different forms of iodine. I've tried just using straight iodine, the oxidized form. I've tried straight using iodide, the reduced form. I can tell you without a doubt, clinically, it works better when you use a combination of iodine and iodide, like good old Lugol solution, which you know now is uh, 200 years, you know, almost 200 years behind it. And so I do add it separately each time they nebulize. I don't want to put it in the stock solution. And then where do you get Lugols? Is that something you can order online? Do you have to get it from a compounding pharmacist? So Lugols for close to 200 years was sold over the counter. You could just go into anywhere and you know buy it that was selling it, and then. The FDA, one of the FDA's edicts um, mandated that you couldn't, um, you couldn't have 5% Lugol solution without coming from a prescription from a doctor. So they, uh, they say Lugol is used for making methamphetamine. Now, I watched, every, <laughs> I watched every episode of Breaking Bad. I don't recall Walter White using Lugol solution, but, but I never really looked up the formula for methamphetamine. But anyways, um, so... So you can get 2% Lugol solution over the counter. And if you do, what I, what I would, if people get 2%, what they could do, they should do this with a healthcare practitioner. So I'm just giving general advice here, yeah. but if they want to nebulize it and get the same thing that I'm doing for my patients, you two drops, you two drops of that instead of one drop of 5%. And, and two drops of 2% is like getting a 4% solution. It's pretty close. Um, and, um, you know, that you can get over the counter. Okay, good. So uh, thanks for clarifying that. Uh, let's progress to the nebulized peroxide, uh, which in my view, you know, prior to this interview, I thought that was your, one of your greatest contributions is, is pioneering this, this intervention uh, and making it clinically available. But I had no idea you were doing vitamin D in the early 90s. I didn't start with my vitamin D until like the late 90s. I mean, you beat me by a minimum of five years and probably more. And, and what really astounds me, I'm gonna get back to the peroxide in a moment, but what really astounds me about your clinical experiences and most clinicians watching this probably don't understand that in the early 2000s, there, there was a study published in India, a very small study that showed potentially toxic effects at 2000 units. So many, you ran the risk of losing your license if you prescribed a dose higher than 2000 units. And it was really even hard to find because, I mean, it was just 400 units. That's, you have to get those capsules. So I'm smiling because I saw that article. That article was nonsense. I had been using it for 10 years at that point, somewhere yeah, around yeah. there. I've been checking levels. Look, I see my patients back about twice a year when they're doing well. I, I'm not criticizing you. I'm, no, just, no. I'm not, I'm not taking brave it. You're and courageous to do so it. I wasn't worried about losing my license because I had all the data on that one. Okay. And, um, I've made a couple of patients toxic on vitamin D because vitamin D, like vitamin A, 
can build up. These are fat soluble vitamins. Well, what do you define as toxic? Well, so I had a lady with uh, multiple sclerosis who was in a, was in a wheelchair. Yeah. Vitamin and, D is essential part of that tra- therapy. No question. So I check her vitamin D level. It, it was like five or six or something. She was at rickets <laughs> levels of vitamin D. So I had read some, there was some older literature of using high dose vitamin D, you know, in multiple sclerosis patients. And, you know, I read some of those case histories and I told her, let's, let's try 50,000 units a day. And I said, but if I do this on you, I have to check your blood every two weeks. And she said, why? And I said, because this can build up, you can become hypercalcemic and you can get calcium, you know, you can get stones, you know, stones, bones, and groans. You can, you can get a problem with your bones. You can get kidney stones, gallbladder stones, you know, and you could, you can die from that. And so I started checking her levels and so we did 50,000 units a day. And she, I, I made her promise me, you will get your blood drawn every two weeks. You'll hear from me every two weeks. Cause I'll call you when the blood works back, say, keep going, or, you know, we need to stop. So it, I watched her vitamin D levels go up and, um, I, about six or eight weeks, I see her back in the office. She comes in now, she came in the wheelchair the first time she's got a cane and she's, hobbling with a cane, but she's walking and she's thrilled. So her pains are better. Her bones don't hurt anymore. And she's able to walk again. And her level was like, I, I don't actually remember it was really high because at that point, the upper limit, this was a while ago, was like greater than hundred nanograms per deciliter. So I don't even know how high it was, but it, or 150 or something like that, or 200, but it was reading as greater than the upper limit, but her calcium levels were fine. So I said, let's keep going. So, oh, why would you do that? Because she was hobbling still and she was feeling better and she didn't want to stop. She had no hypercalcemia. Oh, man, okay. That's a, good, oh. that's a good rationale. So she, so I said to her, I need to see you. Now I saw her in six weeks. I said, I want to see you every two weeks. We'll do your blood. Because I said, you know, I was worried, you know, look, I didn't want to hurt her and, you know, running, certainly didn't want to hurt her and cause her any problems. So I see her two weeks. She's, she's, she's walking better every time I see her. And then four weeks, She's using the cane, but now she's not hobbling. She's kind of got a step to herself and she's feeling better. And she says she's got her life back and she doesn't even know if she needs the cane anymore. I told her to use the cane and I'm checking her calcium levels and calcium was just rock solid, like 9.5, 9.6, you know, right in the middle of the reference range, hadn't budged. And then we did this for four months. Now she dropped her cane a couple of weeks later than that and was walking without the cane. She said she's never felt better in her life. And four months, her calcium starts to rise over 10. Now, it never, it never got to a toxic level. I said, look, we got to stop at this point. No more vitamin D. Got to let your levels come down and your calcium's rising. And we kept checking it every two weeks. Her, her levels never went high and the calcium came back down to 9.5. And once her vitamin D came back in the reference range, I put her on 50,000 units a week. And um, I still see her. She said she felt better when that level was way higher than that. And she wants to go higher than that. And I'm like, ah. I just can't risk a problem here. But, you know, I still, I see this lady every three months. Um, she's walking without that cane and she still tells me, you know, she never felt as well as she did when that vitamin D level was really high. Wow. And I, I've had a couple of multiple sclerosis patients who are in these relapsing, remitting crises. And, you know, I do this 50,000 units a day, check their levels. And usually that'll stop that crisis within a few days of that high dose. And, wow. you know, I just, I run those patients a little bit higher in vitamin D. Now, now the levels, you can read them, you know, greater than the upper limits, greater than 500 nanograms per deciliter. But um, I don't like to run people that high. And, you know, I do check them for toxicity with this. Um, 
but they got to be cautious. And if you're going to do something like this, it should be done under guidance and, you know, sure. Close and following. For your MS patients, do you use LDN or low dose naltrexone? You know, I do use it. I get, I get frustrated with that because um, there are the occasional patient it helps, but I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's less than, I don't know, 5% that seem to get help okay. with it. It's really a frustrating thing for me. I would say it's 1%. And yeah. So I kind of go on and off LDN and when it helps someone, it's really, really neat, really, really rewarding and wonderful, but there's 99 people. It doesn't seem to help and they don't get harmed with it. No. Yeah. yeah. I am willing to use it. I just, I get frustrated with it because I just don't see the the clinical effects that are reported elsewhere. Great clinical pearls. I wasn't anticipating Uh, that. That is a really useful piece of information to push the vitamin D high to very high levels in people with severe MS certainly something to consider and relatively safe. I mean, it's really hard to overdose, even at a, I mean, you definitely want to monitor the calcium levels to be safe, but just it's really hard. You know, don't let someone become hypercalcemic. So yeah. everyone high in their vitamin D levels. If they're not hypercalcemic, they're not having issues. I mean, I only do this, you know, during sure. a crisis situation for somebody. Sure. And, um, and I have not seen it fail. They, people feel better with it. They, they like that. So I want to get back to peroxide because I, I really, uh, I've embraced that therapy as, and, and, and believe that it's the single most effective intervention, not to, to disparage any of the other therapies you're using, but if I only one, it would do that. And I wasn't as convinced with, about the iodine, but you make a very compelling argument for that. And probably I'm going to integrate that into what I'm recommending in the future. So the question I have on the peroxide, you have 0.4%. And I want to dialogue with this because 0.04%. I'm sorry, zero point multiple one tenth of what I just said. So zero point zero four percent. I've been typically recommending 0.1 percent, which is about two and a half times higher, just because um, we're both recommending the uh, food grade peroxide, and the food grade peroxide doesn't have stabilizers, so. Uh, and I want to discuss that too. I mean, how long do you think it's stable in the fridge? A few months, less, or how? Well, you know, we we mix it up for our patients in a bag of sterile normal saline, and we put we put a mineral in there to mm-hmm. activate it, such as um, manganese. If you can get manganese, manganese man- to activate the peroxide. You know what? That's it's, it's in some of the old literature. Uh, really? And so we can't get manganese anymore, so we put a little bit of magnesium in there, just a tiny amount, and. Um, we dilute the peroxide down to 0.04% in that bag of saline. Mm-hmm. And then I tell patients, keep it in the fridge and they draw off that. And um, clinically it seems to work for about three months and then it loses its potency. Okay. So that, so you're, you're seeing that you actually clinically observe this three you know, months have, and then throw it away. I have severe asthma. I've had it since I was a kid. I was on all those inhalers and you know steroids and course I wasn't eating great either you know as a kid and a teenager yeah. until I learned holistic medicine once I cleaned up my diet and started correcting vitamin de- mineral deficiencies I, my asthma got better but I get asthma attacks still with colds and mm-hmm. so look when set when COVID came around I was worried you know here I got lung issues and mm-hmm. you know I'm going to be around these patients but anyways so I've used the nebulized peroxide for for me whenever I get sick and I also use it prophylactically during the COVID crisis where when I come home from work after seeing patients, I just nebulize as soon as I get home from work to take care of whatever I was exposed to. But I can tell you from my experience, and then I, I, I realized the patients were experiencing the same thing. Those peroxide solution bags 
were lasting about three months in the fridge. And then they seemed to lose, people didn't get okay. as good of effect with it. And I would tell them, just throw it out, get another one or, you know, make your own. All right, so, so two questions on that. The first is, this is one of the reasons why I was recommending a little higher dose, because if it's, if I if double the dose, it's going to be pretty similar, but it, at least initially, but even that, but if it's twice as high as the concentration, you might, instead of getting three months for you might go to four or five, six months. And the person who doesn't know the difference or forgets to change your three months, you might get a, a longer life. And then the second, before we respond to that, the second part is, I'm wondering why you would use an IV bag because it's plastic and it's got plasticizers and phthalates and BPA that could potentially dilute, get diffused out into the solution. And I, I would just put it in glass, like a glass <coughs> ball, ball right glass. Um, but there, I, have two, I have two comments on that. Number one, you're right on that. Number two, um, keeping it cold will lessen the chance of that happening. Okay. And when the osmolarity of that solution is up high enough, much less chance of pulling the phthalates out. So because we add that mineral to it, because we add the peroxide to it, I think the osmolarity comes up enough where you're not going to okay. pull the phthalates out of there. And you certainly don't want to heat it or keep it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But we, we, we mix it, we keep it cold, we, we send it home on an ice pack. And, um, you know, look, it, it certainly would be better to make it in glass than plastic, but... Yeah, because you're not worried about contaminating. I mean, I'm using the syringe to take it out, but we're making a sterile solution. We we yeah. keep it no, sterile. I get it, but I don't know that you need a sterile solution. I'm not sure either, but we've always done it that way. It's always yeah, yeah. worked that way, and yeah. you know, we've we've kept it that way. Yeah, yeah. And then the other thing too is, is for those who are going to do this at home, they're not going to your office to get this. We clearly understand the importance of making it normal saline which is about a teaspoon of salt and a pint of water. And that yeah. gives you 0.9% saline solution, which is about the concentration of salt in your body fluids. So to just to prevent damage from that. So the, uh, you do not want to use this with, with distilled water. That's the last thing you want to do because that could be probably cause a physiological damage if you did that. Yeah, um, I agree. Normal saline is, is there for a purpose. That's what our, our body is running through our veins and our arteries. And, you know, that's what we want to use. You do not want to use distilled water. You can use distilled water to make your normal saline solution. Yeah, yeah, but you got to add salt. You got to add salt to it. And, you know, salt's been an integral part to my holistic practice for years. You know, I've written a book on salt and um, been encouraging my patients who don't have kidney failure to use salt in their diets and to make sure they maintain adequate salt levels because most people are salt deficient and that puts a big stress on the body. Um, so absolutely, I agree with you. And I also would say your 0.1% solution, I can't see any harm with that. Um, I've seen people nebulize 3% peroxide. They don't seem to have any harm with that either. Yeah, Tom Levy recommends a 3% or even higher. I yeah. don't see any harm with that either. It's a little more drying on the throat, but yeah. beyond that, there's no real harm with that either. So Yeah, but I, I like the strategy, man. Use the lowest dose you can get away with. My suggestion, if people are going to do it at home, since it's not a sterile solution, I would probably only use that for a day or two and then just make a new batch, you know, yeah. just make a daily batch. So, you know, you're, you know, and not what's going to grow in normal saline, not much, but um, I would make a daily batch of it and it's not expensive and it just takes a little bit of work to do it. Especially if it's in the fridge. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So I, I, you know, because I'm so enamored with this therapy, I just want to continue dialoguing about it and, and get your views on the mechanism of action. Uh, obviously, regular peroxide is a topical disinfectant. I mean, it, it, it's a virucidal 
on contact. I mean, it just decimates these lipid, the lipid envelopes of the, of the viruses. So, but it also seems to have a secondary messenger effect. So why don't you discuss your understanding of the mechanism? Because I think many people would be intrigued to so, hear that. You know, in when I doing when I was started doing holistic medicine, and I ran across hydrogen peroxide in the literature, and I thought this is really interesting. You know, that Indian doctor from the 1920s or 30s was using it to treat pneumonia, IV hydrogen peroxide. And he found the death rate from pneumonia was cut in half because it was before antibiotics at the time. So he recommended using a dilute solution of IV peroxide to treat pneumonia. And so, you know, it's an oxidative therapy. You know, we're kind of all conditioned that antioxidants are good and oxidants are bad, but really you need a balance of them. It's, it's, it's called a redox and you, it's like a teeter-totter. And you need oxidants to stimulate the breakdown of old cells and old tissue and injured tissue. And you need antioxidants to stimulate the, re, the repair of those old cells and old tissues and broken down tissue. And so you want to get rid of old and injured tissue. You want to build new tissue. And for example, if everything is working right and you're getting rid of old and injured bone cells um, and rebuilding bone cells, every eight to 10 years, you get a new skeleton. Now, you can, you can, so, so it's not just take antioxidants and I've had patients and I've written newsletters over this, you know, over the years that I see patients come in and they feel lousy and they're achy and they're got all these fibromyalgia complaints and, you know, they're, they're tired and, you know, really have a miserable life and they're taking two bagfuls of supplements. So I, I always ask them the same question. What in those bags makes you feel better? And they look at me with a puzzled look and I'm like, tell me, you, you, you've got three dozen things here you're taking. What, tell me one, tell me what things you're taking. I know when I take this, I feel better. Most of the time they don't know. They're just taking things. So I always tell them your, your, your antioxidant oxidant teeter totter is imbalanced. You've got too many antioxidants. And so you, 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 you have to break down old and injured tissue to repair it. You, to rebuild new tissue, you got to break down the old stuff. So the oxidants do have a benefit. And what the oxidants do is they stimulate the redox pathway. I wrote about this in depth in my ozone book. And I, what, what I think we're getting with this hydrogen peroxide and ozone and high dose vitamin C is that you're, you're stimulating this redox pathway to move electrons around. When you move electrons around, the, you can make energy molecules, ATP. You can stimulate repair cells and stem cells and energy production and get things moving again. And so the, the human body produces a tremendous amount of peroxide. It's produced all over the body in every cell. Um, if this was such an accident therapy that it's dangerous, um, you, we wouldn't, we would see problems with it. I mean, why would we produce so much of it? So using small amounts of peroxide, either IV or um, nebulizer only has a good clinical effect. I do not see negative effects with it. I've seen some people, they don't respond to it, but I can tell you, I don't see negative effects with it. Um, and it's the, the oxidative therapies have been one of the most impressive things I've seen in my practice. When I include oxidative therapies, I'm saying high dose vitamin C IVs along yeah. with ozone and along with hydrogen peroxide. Yeah. Um, yeah. Most people don't classify vitamin C as an oxidative therapy, but it is because as I understand it, one of the metabolic breakdown products is peroxide. You got it. It stimulates peroxide production when you use high dose vitamin C. And so I can tell you clinically, it's really an amazing therapy. 
Uh, I, can I give you one more anecdote with uh, sure. Nebulized Peroxide? Lot, your anecdotes are hitting right. out of the park. So I call this man the blue man. And he was about 80 years old, bad COPD. He, he's the girlfriend of my patient who's about 86 years old. And they come in, they're this cute couple. She's in great shape. I still see her. She's in her mid nineties now, um, <laughs> but she's in great shape. He's, you know, got an oxygen tank with him on wheels and he's all blue. His lips are blue. His nails are blue. He's huffing. He, f- he feels like he's going to die. And, you know, he's on all these inhalers and steroids and things like that. And he can't breathe. Um, so I said to him, the first visit, I said, you know, you got to nebulize hydrogen peroxide and iodine. So he, he was game and got a nebulizer and, you know, mixed up the solution for him. And he comes in two weeks later to go over his lab test that I got with him. I told him to nebulize four times a day. Um, he's no longer blue in his lips. He's no longer blue in his nails. He's still got his oxygen on. He's wow. got, he's got some gait now. He can move. He doesn't look like he's all hunched over. He's certainly not breathing like he was. And he tells me, He's 70% better just by doing that. He didn't do anything else because I didn't go over his labs yet. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. He went over his labs, corrected some nutrient imbalances, kept him nebulizing. And this man nebulized for about 10 years. Um, I saw him maybe three or four times a year. We would just adjust things. His breathing was fine. Sometimes he had the oxygen on, sometimes he didn't. He always had the tank with him. And then he went to a nursing home near the end. He was in a nursing home for about a year and a half. And I went and made house calls to him at the nursing home. He's in this old nursing home with cinder blocks. It looked like a like where you went to high school, public high school, you know, building like that. And um, he had that nebulizer with him, and those doctors wanted to take that away from that nursing home. And he he said over my dead, gripping hand, blue hands, or whatever he said to him. And he said, "You're not taking this away. This has kept me alive for you know nine years or whatever he was there." And he nebulized up until his death around ninety. And his um, girlfriend, I still see, and we still talk about him. And um, he, he's my really famous peroxide nebulized story. You know, the, the blue man who yeah, didn't turn a, blue after he started nebulizing it. Yeah, that's a fascinating anecdote. So what, what do you believe was, was responsible for improving the oxygenation of this guy? Well, you know, I think what I think peroxide does is it, it has like a detoxifying effect on lungs. And it must have some kind of cleansing effect where whatever was inhibiting his oxygenation um, you know, he was a long-term smoker who stopped. Mm-hmm. So whatever, whatever crud was there or debris was there, I think that peroxide just kind of scrubbed it away. And you now the peroxide breaks down in your body from enzymes like catalase, it does break down into water and oxygen. So maybe it's the direct peroxide effect, but he, he was feeling, you know, after he did the peroxide for a couple of days, the first time, it's not like he needed to keep doing it to, he kept doing it because he felt good, but he couldn't notice quite the good effect because he was already feeling good with it. So yeah, I, yeah. I think you get an oxygenation effect. I think you get a, a redox effect with that teeter-totter, moving some more energy molecules around. And I think you get a detox effect with it. Wow, that's just a, that's a fascinating story. I'm uh, saddened when I hear it because my mom ultimately died from complications from COPD for being a lifetime smoker. And I did, was not aware of it, even though you were doing it actively during that time and I could have used it. It just took me about 20 years longer to figured this thing out than it did for you. Uh, so um, I, I want to highlight another important aspect of the nebulized oxygen therapy, which is the nebulizer. 
and you just discuss this in the book, but I want to hear it from you directly and the difference between, between using the $25, $30 one that you battery powered device that you can get on Amazon, which almost, you know, when people think about, hear about this, they, that's the first one they buy and how don't not to do that because it's a piece of junk and you really want to get the one you plug in. So can you expand on that for, with more details? You know, I'm glad you brought it up. Um, I made a point of that, as you know, in that chapter on nebulizing of, of, you know, I made a, a strong point saying it's really important to buy the right nebulizer. Nebulizers are cheap. You can get them for 50 bucks, 50, 60 bucks, you know. And the right one, the right one. The right one. But you don't have to spend hundreds of dollars on a nebulizer. You, but what, what happened at the beginning of the COVID crisis was that um, I had a couple of patients who were using our solution calling me. I not, my breathing's not better. I'm like, Everyone's breathing's getting better from this. <laughs> Why aren't yours getting better? And there was there was three patients calling me, and I'm like, let's increase the frequency. Do it every half an hour instead of every hour while you're awake. <laughs> you know who wants to do that? Then you're just nebulizing your whole life. And I was calling them twice a day because they weren't doing better. And finally, I said to one of them, "What's what nebulizer do you have?" And she got a, you know, hand. She's describing to me it runs on batteries and it's a handheld one. And so. I said, let me call another patient. I'll call you back. I called the other one. What kind of nebulizer do you have? Same thing. I'm, and I call them both back. And I'm like, look, my other patients aren't having this issue. Let's get you a real nebulizer, you know, a plug-in desktop. Um, they're called, um, you know, I got my book over here to look, but they're, it's in that book. I'll look as we're talking. The jet, jet nebulizer? Jet nebulizers. Yeah. And I said, let's get a jet nebulizer. And um um, I show a picture of that in my book. And as soon as they got that, they were on their way. And yeah. so I made a, I made a point in that book of saying that um, you got to use the right nebulizer and that's important for this therapy. The handheld ones just don't provide enough oomph to get it deep enough into the lungs. That's my guess with it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Thanks for expanding on that. I found that the Paratech seems to be a useful one. Uh, it used to be available easily on Amazon when they had it in stock. And now they require a business account to get it, which makes it extraordinarily difficult. So people are getting them on eBay and, and other sites that sell them. And, and a common uh, frustration that I hear from many people who seek to acquire one of these devices, whether it's Paratech or another, is that they require a doctor's order. But interestingly, one of the person who said that said, I just said, uh, I saw Dr. Mercola's video and he said to use it. So I said they accepted that. <laughs> they just got, they just legalist. But do you have any suggestions uh, or recommendations for people who are seeking to get one of these? Because the key, and I, this is a huge point that I want to emphasize too. You do not, you do not want to go out and run and get a nebulizer when you need it. You need to have this at home before you need it. Because you need if you're the, not going to need it, someone you know or love is going to use it. You are right on the money. You need all the supplies on hand because you don't know when you're going to get sick. You don't right. want to be scrambling for it. And I, you know, look, I, maybe I'm beating my own drum here, but you know, I was writing about this and I'm, I, you know, the nebulizers and vitamin A went in short supply across the country. And, you know, I was, I was pounding this drum hard. And um, so we started carrying on our office for our patients and, um, you know, that, that was our way around it because we had the same yeah, problem. Yeah. Patients right, right. Your, your patients didn't have a problem, but unfortunately not, ever, not right. everyone in the country is so, your patient. So you, so you know what? Amazon has them. You can look around. You know, they're, they're out there. Now there's now the shortages seem to be eased now. I don't hear it like I did before. Um, so it, you're, you're, I can't tell you, Joe, you're 100% right. 
have this stuff on hand. It should be in your first aid kit, just ready, yeah, yeah. waiting to go if you get sick. And the other thing is you need to practice to make your own solution up before you have to do it and you're sick. Because when you're sick, you're not thinking clearly. You want to know what you're doing. You want to know how to do it. You want to do it quickly. And the faster you get into this, the better. The patients that we had the most trouble with were referred to us by other doctors. Um, and they were already sick for 7, 10, 14 days before. Yeah, they you got to get in the first five days. You got to get they, they were sick. And that one who died, you know, was referred to us after almost two weeks of being sick. Um, and um, so like any illness, it's, it's much better to treat it early than it is to treat it late. Yeah. And I guess the last thing before we sign off is the, uh, maybe you can discuss the dilution tables because most of the time the, the food grade concentration is about 12%, although you can get it 35% also, but typically it's 12. So you have to dilute it down quite a bit to get to the 0.04% or 0.1%. So I mean, look, the easiest, the easiest thing I think to do is whether you get 30%, 12%, 10%, dilute it down to 3%. Because 3% is sort of what is over the counter. And from that, you can easily just, you know, dilute it 100 to 1, you're 0.03%. So you can put 100 cc's of saline. So this, so I, you know, I went through this with my cousin who was in, who was in um, Akron, Ohio. And in the middle, you know, March, February, March, you know, when, when people, you know, when, when new viral illnesses start, they're always more severe at the beginning because they come they kill the weak or, you know, in some of the medical literacy would call it Tinder. You know, they, they go through the Tinder that's built up, you know, the, the older people, the sick people that are going to die of something. And then they tip them over and they die. Once that's cleared out of the way, the virus usually will become just endemic and just, you know, low grade. The virus doesn't want to kill all of us because if it killed all of us, it would kill itself. So it just learns to live with us, which is what this thing is going to do. You know, this thing ain't going away from this point on. We're going to Every flu season, it's going to be there. And so we better learn to live with it. We better have healthy immune systems to deal with it. Um, so I get a call from my cousin in Akron, his wife. He's a doctor and he can't breathe. He's lost a sense of taste and smell. He's got a fever. He can't breathe. She's telling me that he walks two stairs, two or three stairs up or down. He's got to sit on the stairs to rest. He's 50 years old. He's in good shape, doesn't smoke. He's got COVID. I mean, you know, it wasn't rocket science. And so she said, I don't have your nebulizer solution, but I, a neighbor had a nebulizer and I got it. I want to make my own. So over the phone, I had her go get some unrefined salt. And I told her to get either Celtic salt, you know, uh, Selena's Celtic salt, Redmond's real salt or Himalayan salt. I've yeah. tested all three of those over the That'll years, work. four times. They've all been clean from heavy metals. Um, and I had her get food grade peroxide and she found 10%, she found 12% food grade peroxide. So over the phone, we dilute, we made, you know, and she had a syringe. So the, the one thing I would tell the listeners is get syringes. You can get 20 cc syringes, 60 cc syringes. So you know exactly what you're mixing up here. Um, so we made a hundred, we diluted the peroxide to make the normal saline, like you said, you know, in a pint of water. And from that, we took 100 cc's out into a bowl, glass bowl. And then I had her take the, so she, she also diluted the 12% the, um, peroxide, four to one in distilled water. So one part peroxide to four parts water. So we had now a 3% food grade peroxide solution. So I had her take one cc of that, mix it in 100 cc's of normal saline. Now we've got 
you know, a um, 0.1%. Because she didn't have the syringes to go down to 0.04%, I used the Mercola, Mercola method here. And <laughs> I had her do that. She had Lugol solution. She found that at a health food store, 2%. I had her draw three cc's out of that normal saline peroxide mixture, put, put two drops of the 2% Lugols in there and he nebulized. And, and he told, you know, I was on the phone with him because I was, I told her I'll drive. It's four hours from Detroit. And she goes, You're, you can't drive. You got to work tomorrow. I'm like, you know what? I'll meet you halfway or I'll meet somebody halfway. And we can, you know, it's, it was already like nine o'clock at night when we were doing this. Um, so I, she said, let's just see how this goes. So he did, he did the first nebulizer and was still short of breath and didn't really feel any better with it. And I said, let's do one in an hour. So he does another one in an hour. And I can tell you from treating patients, majority of them tell me after that second nebulized treatment, they feel better. And his was the same thing. He said, as he was doing it, he felt his lungs open up and, you know, he did it for a couple of days after that and got much better and, you know, got over this. And he said he was ready to go to the hospital. He was really sick. He didn't want to go because that was March of 2020 when, you know, the, the, the death rates were too high in the hospitals. They weren't doing anything except, you know, trying to keep you off a ventilator because you went on a ventilator, you were going to die, you know, 80% chance you're going to die. So I have had some patients make it up at home. You can do it but practice before you do it and have all the supplies ready. And um, then when you're not feeling good or someone's sick, you're stressed, you can do it the right way. And you, you won't, you know, it, it won't increase your stress to try and think about what you're doing. Yes. All right. Well, and you should always do this under a doctor's guidance and yeah. work with a holistic practitioner. Ideally, know? ideally. And there's no question. That's a better way to do this. And that's yeah, what I recommend you do. Unfortunately, thanks to the tyrannical interventions and people losing their jobs uh, that may not, you know, and having limited resources, that may not be a, a practical alternative for, for a number of people. But for those who can, that would certainly be the wisest strategy. So I can't thank you enough. You've been a real uh, unbelievable hero in this uh, effort to uh, find strategies to that will alleviate this. And, you know, you really knocked it out of the park. I'm, I'm most impressed with your rapid adoption. This your early, not rapid, but early adoption of this intervention. Uh, really one of the first clinicians in the country, as far as I'm aware of, to, to ever do this. And so you you've know, been doing, you know, I don't, I don't feel like a hero. I just feel like a doctor. I mean, I, yeah, but that, yeah, but you, you literally for what you've done, you could have had your license reprimanded, could have taken it away from you. And, you know, you did it bravely and courageously. It almost happened. Um, that was close to happening. And, yeah. um, you know, look, Joe, I got to sleep at night too. And I got to yeah, treat yeah. these patients and the things were bad. And, you know, I was doing what I was trained to do. And I remember when staff was sort of squawking a little bit, we should close the office. We should close the office. I'm like, no. I'm not closing this office. Patients are going to need us more than ever. I'm only closing the office if I can't, I get sick and I can't do it. Or, um, you know, they don't let me practice. Um, but anyways, you know, it, it's turned out well. And it's, you know, you can take things in, you know, you don't have to wait. You have, you have to have a strong immune system. A better immune system is going to fight whatever you're confronted with. And look, SARS-CoV-2 is here now. There's going to be SARS-CoV-3 or 4 or 5 or some other illness that's out there. So we got to have a strong immune system. You know, the, we'll see if the vaccine works. We didn't even get into that one, but yeah, we'll yeah, see. Yeah. We, we don't have enough time for that, but that's a whole other issue. So uh, yeah, but your book is a holistic treatment for a holistic approach with viruses. And 
get that on Amazon or at, at a minimum, you need to listen to this interview again, slowly and carefully, because most of the pearls in the book are here and even ones that aren't in the book. So, uh, so Joe, we don't have it on Amazon. I got, I got mad at Amazon years ago. Oh, okay. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So it's sorry just at my that. website. It's drbrownstein.com. Amazon and I parted ways years ago and I'm glad okay. we did that. Yeah. Okay. Dr. 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 Brownstein, no period there, drbrownstein.com. And you can get the book there. And thank you for, for uh, uh, clearing up my misinformation there. So I appreciate that because I made some assumptions that weren't true. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, you keep up the great work, man. It's always great connecting Me with too. you. Uh, I learned so much every time we talk and, you know, you've really helped uh, modify my understanding of this because you're in the trenches. I'm not, I, I elected to re remove myself from the trenches and, and educate the public more widely, but, you know, and bring people who are in the trenches, bring your valuable clinical experience. Cause I mean, if, if the word got out, what you were doing in the nineties, in the nineties, and it became standard of care. Can you imagine the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people whose lives could have been extended and didn't need to suffer needlessly? It's so frustrating to me. Yeah, so it's clear. I mean, we need people like you, but we also need people like me to help spread the information because it's, it's the combination, that synergy that's going to be so effective. So I really deeply appreciate everything you've done. I mean, you're really, I have great respect for your work and really uh, I'm thankful that you are out there doing it. Thank you, Joe.